Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture is from Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. All right, I uh, invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning from your prophet Amos. Lord, we uh, just pray that uh, this, uh, this prophet from some 2,700 years ago would, uh, would speak to us as well. We know that this letter was written to the Israelites, but it is for us today. So, Lord, we, we uh, just bow our hearts and heads before you, and uh, we just pray that you would open the eyes of both our heads and our hearts, to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if I act, if I yawn up here, I um, hope that you'll forgive me. We were camping this weekend. Um, I uh, just got back to our house this morning around uh, 7.30 and uh, pulled out of camp around 5, uh, 5.45, 6 a.m. this morning. So uh, after the first night of camping, we were with a large group. I asked one of my friends, I said, uh, how'd you sleep last night? And he said, like I was camping. (laughs) And the other guy standing next to me said, oh, I slept like a baby. I woke up every hour uncomfortable and crying. (laughs) So that was kind of my my experience as well, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, Excited to be here in Amos with you this morning. In August of 2001, I was on my first deployment with the Navy. We were in Puerto Rico doing counter-drug operations, and they sent us to El Salvador for two weeks to, uh, to try to chase down drug runners in the kind of cigar boats that, uh, you know, those skinny long boats with three outboard motors bombing across the ocean at 60, 70 knots. We flew kind of a specially equipped aircraft to kind of hunt these, these types of things. Um, so, you know, we get to El Salvador and, and of course there's no barracks, there's no officer's quarters. And so uh, we stayed in a hotel. We stayed in a quality inn actually. And uh, we're pulling up to the, to the hotel and I noticed as we're pulling up that there are 12-foot hall, uh, tall walls all around with barbed wire at the top. And then at each corner uh, of these walls are 20-foot towers. 
and there's a, a, a guard who's wearing body armor and holding a shotgun. I'm like, what's going on here? So when we check in, I, I asked the, uh, the, the person, I says, why, what's the deal? They said, well, there's a lot of banditos around here. When you get outside of San Salvador, the banditos control a lot of this area. So, you know, I didn't know what to make of that. I, I kind of, you know, thought maybe that's a little bit like the security sign in your front yard. Like, it, you know, you may not actually have a security system, but it's going to deter the thieves. So, anyhow, we're, you know, great mission. Actually, the food was pretty good at this hotel um, and feeling pretty secure behind these walls. So, you know, uh, I was feeling kind of fat, dumb, and happy. And, uh, you know, the second or third night we were there, I was woken in the middle of the night. My bed was shaking. It was moving back and forth. I said, what, what's going on here? Next morning, I come down to breakfast with the guys and uh, say, did you guys feel that? Yeah, yeah, it was a tremor. I was like, oh, that makes sense, a tremor. And I, but I got to thinking about it a little bit more. I'm like, well, thank goodness it was only a tremor. What if that had been a 7.0 or an 8.0 earthquake? Here I was feeling like totally secure, right, behind these walls, good mission, good mission, good food, security. And all it would have taken is that. And the whole thing would have come crashing down. In a lot of ways, that's what we have from Amos this morning to the Israelites. His voice, his prophecy to them is a tremor. It's a warning shot that something bigger and much worse than the words he has to say is coming to them. So we're going to look at that today. First, we're going to look at uh, how Israel is really a dead man walking in the first point of your outline. In the second point, we're going to look at destruction, the destruction that is coming to them. Lastly, we'll look at the deceit of denial now, that's a really unhappy outline, um, but I will say there is a redemptive note uh, at the end of this sermon. So, verse, verse 1 of chapter 6, Amos starts off with woe. Like, woe is me. Woe is like sorrow. Sorrow that comes with great pain and suffering and tragedy. Now, uh, you, you may not realize we actually have some youth up here today who would normally be in Sunday school, but this is the fifth Sunday, so they're up here with us today. Some of our youth, and I think maybe even some adults, may recall from the Lego movie. Okay, you with me? The Lego movie. Metal Beard. Metal Beard had a tale of woe due to his untimely dismemberment by Lord Business and his robot army. Metal Beard lived to tell his tale of woe, but this woe is more like that of a funeral procession. Amos is speaking of Israel and Judah as if they are already dead. Israel is a dead man walking. So let's answer a few questions here. What did they do? Why are they being judged? And what will happen to them? So let's look at the first one. What did they do? Well, we know that the overall theme of Amos is that Israel acted unjustly and didn't care for the oppressed. But in verses 2 through 6 here in chapter 6 and then verse 13, Amos gives us a little bit more detail. He says that they were at ease and comfortable due to a false sense of security. They were fat, dumb, and happy. They had strongholds, a great deal of material wealth, and a, a very powerful army. They took comfort in those things. And in verse 2, Amos calls out three cities, Kalna, Hamath, and Gath. These were great cities that everyone thought were unbeatable, but they were all beaten. Amos says, look at those cities. You act like you are unbeatable, but you're no different than them. 
These cities were like Goliath. We all know the story of Goliath, of course, the champion warrior of the Philistines. Too big to be beaten, right? He stood out there. He mocked the nation of Israel. And the Philistines stood behind him and mocked him, mocked them as well, and they taunted. But instead of being unbeatable, what we find is David with a sling and a stone defeating this giant. It wasn't a massive army. It wasn't even a massive man who defeated this giant. It was God's anointed, probably about the same age as some of you high school boys that are in here this morning. So the Israelites had put their hope in their strongholds, but that wasn't it. They were also feeling secure about their material wealth. They had a lot of, a lot of money. We, we look at verses 4 through 6. Look at what it says here. They lie on beds of ivory. They stretch themselves out on couches. They eat lambs from the flock, calves from the stall. They sing idle songs. They drink wine in bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest oils. You know, it's interesting. During Amos' time, most people ate meat once or twice a year. That's how expensive it was. And it was only for special occasions, like a festival. But here, look at the notable men of Israel. What do they do? They're not only are they eating meat, right? It'd be one thing if they were taking a cow from their herd who, you know, had been with them for 12 years and, you know, given them lots of milk and, and had seven baby cows or whatever, you know, one of those things, right? No, instead, they're actually killing babies to eat. Lambs and calves still in the birthing stall. That's just a, 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 they're so wealthy that to slaughter an infant animal was nothing to them. There will always be more. We don't need to worry about it. Well, look at the wine. They drink wine from bowls. If you drink wine, where do you drink it from? You, you drink it from a glass, right? What would you think about someone coming over to your house and you offer them wine and they say, Hey, thanks for the cup, but um, do you have a cereal bowl? Because I'm going to be drinking a lot. These people were drunks, overindulging on one of God's gifts. The real kicker, however, is this last part of verse 6. See what it says there. Amos says, they are not grieved at the ruin of Joseph. Do you remember the beginning of Joseph's story? His envious brothers, right, he had a coat of many colors. His envious brothers, they chucked him in a well. Be done with you. Now, we know the story goes from there. He doesn't stay in the well, thankfully. But do you see the point that Amos is making here? The men who would become the 12 tribes of Israel were not grieved at their brother's ruin. In fact, they actively worked to bring his ruin about. In the same way, the well-off of Israel, they didn't care. They didn't care about their national sisters and brothers. They were too busy taking another lamb from the flock. Skip ahead with me to verse 13. This is the third source of their ease and comfort, their belief in their military might. They rejoice and boast about their military victories over Lodebar and Karnam. But if we were to look at what Lodebar means, it means nothing, no thing. Their victory was really nothing. And Carnium means horns. And it suggests Joab. And I'm sure all of you were following right along with that, right? No, I know that uh, you might need a little bit of a memory jog on that one. Joab 
was David's kind of his chief of staff for the army, his, his lead general, very loyal to David. But when Solomon came to power, he really um, kind of went off and went with uh, somebody who was trying to steal the power from Solomon. And of course, when, when Solomon found out about this and Solomon finally was able to, to take all of the power um, and, and take the throne, Joab ran to the altar and he grabbed the horns on the altar because he thought, surely Solomon won't kill me. I'm here in the, you know, in, in the Lord's temple. He won't kill me. I'm, I'm grabbed a hold of these arms as sort of a safe place of security. But that didn't matter to Solomon. He had Joab destroyed anyhow. Joab's sin far outweighed any supposed protection that he thought he might get by grabbing the horns of the altar. And in the same way, Israel's sin far outweighed any military might that they thought they had. So Amos's voice is like that tremor that I felt in El Salvador. It's a warning. The Israelites felt secure, but they were not secure at all. They weren't secure at all. All it would take is one move by God, and they, were, they would be gone, taken out. So that's what they did. And in a sense, you could kind of point to that as, as the why behind God's judgment. But I think there's a de- deeper issue here. The scripture actually tells us in verse 8 that there's a deeper issue here. Let's look at verse 8 real quick. And you just think about how Amos teased this up, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is what he writes. The Lord God has sworn by himself. God doesn't say that very often in the scriptures, that he has sworn by himself. This is a pretty big deal. Then declares the Lord on top of that. And then what else? The God of hosts, the God of everything, that all there is, says this about the nation of Israel. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. It's pride. It's pride that is behind their ease and security. And God hates it. He despises it. He loathes it. To abhor something is like hatred squared. It's hatred plus disgust. It's hard to imagine a stronger feeling towards something than abhorrence. And that's how God feels about Israel's pride. Now, it's easy to think of pride as outward boasting. Oh, look at me, how great I am, and all of my accomplishments and so forth. I think that's the definition of pride. That's what we use when we want to let ourselves off the hook when we don't actually want to evaluate ourselves. Using that standard, it's easy to say, I'm not prideful, I don't boast. Look at me. But that's not a full definition of pride. Pride is a heart issue. It's actually the same exact problem that Adam and Eve had when they disobeyed God's command to not eat the fruit. And it is really at the root of every sin, guys. Every sin starts with pride. I actually know better than God. I don't need to obey what he's telling me to do here. I can ignore that. I can get away with that. Or I know he'll forgive me. It's all good. Let's just go ahead and do this thing. We behave, when we do those things, we behave as if we do not need him. We look a lot like Israel. 
But brothers and sisters, if there is one thing that could have spared these Israelites, it would have been the confession that they need him. Right? An admission of their pride. God, I need you. And not only that, I submit to your ways. Your ways are better than my ways. You know better than I do. But they did not. Their pride blinded them. They were so blinded by their pride that they didn't even see that need. And I just implore you today, do not, do not let it blind you to your need for God. So that was the second question, the why. Now our last question, what will be the outcome, which actually takes us to the second point in our outline. Destruction is coming Picking up in uh, verse 7 of chapter 6, and it'll take us through verse 9 of chapter 7. In 2008, uh, the U.S. and most of the world fell into a deep recession. It was severe and prolonged. I know many uh, many of you in this room remember it. We've come to call it the Great Recession. Some people call it the Global Financial Crisis. Leading up to it, things were really good. From 2002 to 2007, in the United States, on average, home values increased by 50% adjusted for inflation. That's significant. That's not supposed to happen. But beneath the surface, cracks and weaknesses were beginning to come through. Borrowers took on excessive debt and speculated that prices would only go up forever. They used their houses like ATM machines. They pull money out and spend it on their lifestyle. Banks underwrote liar loans. Do you remember that? and affordability mortgages with teaser rates and negative amortization. It was a bubble, and every bubble eventually bursts. And that's what happened in 2008. The party was over. The economic damage was widespread. I bet you know somebody who either lost their job or lost their home. I know I I do. The bill for all that financial partying had finally come due. Well, that's what we have here with Israel. They partied, they drank, they ignored the plight of their brothers, and in some cases actively oppressed their brothers, held them down to fuel their lifestyle, but the bill is about to come due, and Amos is here to deliver it. Look at verse 7b, the second half of verse 7. The revelry of those who stretch themselves out will pass away. It's interesting, Jesus teaches us that in, that in his kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? And he's talking about honor and reward for living according to his kingdom ways. But when it comes to judgment, the opposite is at work. The first will be first. Verse 7 says that it's the notable men who will be the first to go into exile. But it's not just limited to the notable men. This judgment is for everyone. Leaders out here, I want you to listen. Take a look at verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. So the great house and the little house, not just the notable men, but the small people, the people that aren't seen. Those of great stature and those of no consequence will be destroyed. They will be blown into bits. So we talk about integration, right? We want things to work together. Let's integrate. Bringing things together for the better. Here we see absolute, in this instance, we see absolute and total disintegration. The undoing of integration. 
And we know by now that it is by a foreign nation. We've heard in the previous weeks the Assyrians are going to destroy and oppress Israel from the very northern tip at Lebo Hamath to the very southern tip at the Brook of Araba. The Assyrian conquest and oppression would dominate the entire country, not just a few cities. And I'd ask the leaders just to listen for a moment, and here's, here's where I was going with this. The leaders of Israel were a complete failure. I think we would all, we would all agree to that. But here's the thing. The consequences of their leadership failure would not be contained to just them. The consequences of their leadership failure extended to the entire, the entire country. Judgment would fall on all. Now, not necessarily equally. The notable men were the first to go and probably suffered the most, and rightly so. But all would suffer because of their crummy leadership. And I would just say this, leaders be warned. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So let us be sowing holiness in our lives and in the lives under our care because we are responsible. Amos continues his prophecy with visions of judgment. And there are three here in chapter 7. And I'm going to cover them briefly, and then there's a fourth in chapter 8. So the first one there is in verses, um, verses uh, 1 through 3. It's about locusts. God says he's going to send locusts to destroy the crop and cause a famine. Amos pleads with God to forgive Israel. Forgive, Lord. Israel is so small. Jacob is so small. How can he stand? And the Lord relents. Then Amos has another vision, and it says fire, if you look at verses 4 through 6. I think what he's referring to here is a severe drought, a drought that would completely dry up every cistern and every well in Israel. This time Amos pleads with God. This is interesting. If you look at it, it's a very, the, the formula is almost exactly the same, verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 6. There's one difference, though. And Amos, this time, doesn't even say forgive. He just says, Lord, cease. Just stop. They can't handle this. This is too much. Like, I'm not even going to ask you for forgiveness. Just stop. And the Lord relents. And in the last vision, let me just read this for you. This is what he showed me, starting in verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Just for context, Jeroboam was the king in Israel at that time. Who's ever seen a plumb bob and a plumb line before? This is a plumb bob. It's a weight, okay, that goes. It's got a very sharp, pointy tip at the bottom. And this is a plumb line. Now, if I was perfectly still, this line, this little string here, would be perfectly straight up and down, would it not? 
So what's God doing here? He's saying, I'm going to drop my plumb line, my perfect standard of righteousness beside the wall of Israel. And we're going to see, is Israel straight and true or is it crooked and crumbling? What do you see Amos do in response to the plumb line that has dropped? The first two times he saw locusts, he said something. Fire, severe drought, he said something. What does he say here? Nada. Why is that? Why doesn't Amos say anything? There's nothing he can say. The plumb line has been dropped. The objective truth of God's holy righteousness has been dropped next to Israel, and there's nothing that he can say. The case is closed. There is no hope for Israel. God's judgment is coming, and it will not be stopped. Now, there's an interesting shift in the narrative. And to be honest, I wouldn't have expected Amos uh, I, rather, I would have expected Amos to kind of keep rolling with these judgment visions, but he actually kind of pivots here, and he, he, he shares an interaction between himself and Amaziah, who is really kind of a chief priest in Israel, and that takes us to our third point in our outline, the deceit of denial. So I, because I don't have enough going on in my life, I sit on our HOA board, um, my wife questioned the judgment of that. Um, nevertheless, part of the job is upholding the covenants that we have in our neighborhood. So we send letters to our neighbors when they violated a covenant. Garage cans visible from the road, unauthorized paint colors, unkempt lawns, and so forth. You get the idea. Um, for all those who live in an area where there is no covenants, you're probably being reminded of why you want to be in an area where there are no covenants and so forth. Anyhow, sometimes we receive, and more often than you'd think, we receive nasty grams in response. So one year, a neighbor lost a couple of trees in a windstorm. He removed the trees, but six months later, there were still basically two big holes in his front yard. He hadn't really done anything with it. So we sent a letter pointing out the noncompliance and asking him what his plans were. You going to put a garden in? Are you going to plant some grass? Just, just let us know what your plans are. He came back with some epic snark. He goes, he goes, I'm sorry that I allowed the windstorm to come and blow down these trees and ruin your precious neighborhood covenants. Next time I'll be sure to hold back the wind. And on it went. What's funny is that I actually thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> some... Some of the other people on the board didn't think it was so funny, but anyhow. The bottom line is that he was in violation, and he hadn't taken any kind of corrective action at all, not even any attempt. No communication with us. Hey, I know it's not looking great. Here's what I'm going to do. And here's the thing. He knew it. That's why he pushed back like he did, right? He's defending himself. He's denying and defending. That kind of denial and pushing away of truth is what we find in these last eight verses of chapter 7 where Amaziah confronts Amos. So Amaziah, we, we don't know, but we think maybe he was a chief priest, but certainly an important priest in Bethel. He's a religious leader. He's one of these notable men that we're talking about here, right? And Amos' prophecy offends him because he's totally guilty. But instead of being scared and frightened at offending God, he stiffens his neck. Instead of repenting like Nineveh when Jonah prophesied, 
He, tur- he tries to turn the, ta- turn the tables. He-, he denies and deflects back to Amos like, oh, you're, you're actually just conspiring against Jeroboam. Right? You're just, you-, you know, just go back to Judah. Prophesy against them. Well, everything's good here. I think Amos' response is epic. I'm not here because I want to be. I'm not here because this is fun. I was a shepherd and a farmer. But God called me to deliver this message. And so I'm being obedient. And furthermore, because you deflected and denied when you should have led your people in repentance, the judgment will be more severe for you. Your your wife, she's going to be a prostitute. Your children, they'll be murdered. Your land, it will be taken away. And you will be taken captive and die in a foreign land. And here's the kicker. Your denial, and this is true of every time we deny, your denial changed nothing. God's judgment of Israel is still happening. Well, that's what we've been getting from Amos here for these last four weeks. It's a term I like to use sometimes when I'm playing an opponent in some kind of sport, and I sense that maybe they're backing off a little bit, not giving me their best. I'll just say, no quarter. Give me your best. No quarter. Don't show me any mercy. I want your best. Well, Amos has not been showing any mercy to Israel. That's what it's been for the past four weeks. It's a no-holds-barred, double-barreled blast. As I said, it was written to Israel, but it's for us as well. We've been challenged to ask ourselves how much our politics influence our faith versus our faith influencing our politics. We've asked questions like, how do we work through issues like mercy and justice when so much of that talk and those things have been co-opted by Marxist theories and critical theory and these kinds of things? What do we do with that? We've been asked, are we majoring in the minors? Or are we majoring in what God really cares about? We know the cross was an act of redemptive compassion. But how do we reflect that redemptive compassion in our interactions with other people? Especially the people that the world doesn't see. And then, of course, the main theme is we've been challenged to rethink what justice is. And what does it mean for us as individuals and as a church, as a, as a, as a family of God here at Orchard? What does it mean to do justice? What does that even look like? So what, in the terms of justice, what then does Amos have for us today? Well, I would start with this. We think about, we see this example of the notable men of Israel basically spending all of their resources on themselves, right? Beds of ivory, calves from the stall, lambs from the flock, bowls of wine, anointing their head with oil, the finest oils. Meanwhile, they do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So what does that mean for us? How can we apply that today? And I think one way, and I'm sure there are many, but one way we can apply that is through how we use our resources. 
And I'll just say it more bluntly. How do we use our money? What are we doing with our money? And in, in, in the things that we're doing with our money, the way that we give our money, right, are these in line with God's justice? And let me just give you a framework to think about that. This is just one framework, take it or leave it. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer here, folks. I just want to make sure that you hear that. But this is a framework that I think has helped me. So first, I think about the immediate family of God right here at Orchard. Are there people in need here at Orchard that I can help or that we can help? Real need, too, right? Because we don't want necessarily folks to sort of become accustomed and used to always receiving if they, if they don't have to necessarily. But we start here. And the way we do that is the Deacon's Fund. We talked about the Deacon's Fund a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's been in the bulletin the last couple of weeks. You can write a check to the Deacon's Fund, designate it for the Deacon's Fund. You can uh, link your Amazon account. You can link your King Supers account to the Deacon's Fund. And the, what that Deacon's Fund does is exactly that. It, it helps meet practical needs for your family right here at Orchard. So if you feel like one way to do justice in the family of God, I think that's a great way to do it. Give to the deacon's fund. Let's help one another. Another way that I I think is actually right here, again, in the immediate family of God. We don't see them right here every Sunday morning, but we talk about them a lot. The Pasquales in Italy, right? The Sullivans in Asia. Dan and Christine Graham, you know, in the military. Camp Elam. You know, we, we, we support these folks, and while they're not here with us, they are absolutely a part of our family. And part of, I think, making sure that we're doing justice, so to speak, in the family of God is making sure, to the best of our ability, that their needs are met. And praise God they are, but that might not always be the case. So that's kind of the first category of doing justice with your resources, and specifically the Lord's money. The second would be global family needs, meaning the global church of God, right, globally. And what do we think about there? Well, that could take shape in any number of ways. Um, I'm sure we all have our, our favorite uh, parachurch ministry that we like to, to give and be a part of. I think that's a great way to do that. Um, Alternatives is a wonderful ministry here in town that we're a part of that is all about doing justice for pregnant mothers who are in crisis pregnancies and for their boyfriends and sometimes husbands. This is a great way to use the Lord's resources. And then the last one is a little bit different. Um, How do we do this at home? What does it look like to use the Lord's resources in a way that's just at home? Now, (laughs) this can go a thousand different directions and obviously we don't have time for that. But I just, one thing that came to my mind and it's I'll admit it's probably my stage of life. I know that for some of you, this does not apply. You're past that stage of your life. For some, you're not quite there yet. For some, you're still waiting for this stage of life. But for those that have families and want to and are able to do a vacation, what I would suggest is, I'm not saying don't go to Disney, but what I would suggest is, is there a way to to combine a mission trip with your vacation? Is there a way to go see, if you were um, fortunate enough to go to Italy, to spend three days with the Pasquales and get to know them a little bit better? You know, is that the kind of, can you bring your kids into something like that? So 
just challenge you to kind of think about how you use your resources in a way that forwards God's justice. Because what we don't want to be is like Israel. When we come here, we write our check, or we just have it auto-drafted from our account, don't really think about it too much, and we just, you know, everything's good. We're not really thinking about how we might be able to use the Lord's resources to forward his justice, particularly in his church. So that's my first sort of thought of application for you this morning from this passage. And the second one has to do with security. You know, the Israelites put their hope in their material wealth, their military might, their strongholds. But it's interesting, in verse, at the very beginning, chapter 6, verse 1, it says that they only felt secure. They weren't actually secure. And I think this is an issue that we should actually address in our own lives as well. In what ways is our security just a feeling and not real security? And I would start with this. To the degree that you have placed your hope in anything other than Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, then you are in peril. You are staying in a hotel behind 12-foot walls with barbed wire at the top, armed guards at the corner, feeling great, when all it would take is the slightest move by God and your world would be turned upside down. Just as God lodged David's stone right between Goliath's eyes, he can beat your unbeatable strongholds. I think we know this. There is only one source of security, and that is Jesus. Only he has secured what we need, not only what we need, but what we really want as we look around at all these other things in our life and what we were made for. No one and nothing else can, has, can, or will do that. And yet it is so easy to be deceived. What about my right beliefs and my doctrine? Wonderful, but that doesn't give you security. What about my church going, my giving, my Bible reading, my right living? All of these things are highly commendable, and you should seek them for, for they are an integral part of God's kingdom, but they're not your ultimate source of security. But I feel peaceful. So did the folks on the Titanic until they hit an iceberg. But I do good things. I treat people kindly. I'm a good person. I know you are. I know you are. But relative to what? Relative to others, sure, but not relative to God's standard. There's no bell curve, right? He doesn't grade on a bell curve where, okay, top 50%, you're in. Other 50%, so sorry. Or 33 or 10 or even the top 1%. It's not, it's not how he works. It's either you ace the test or you fail. It's a digital event. It's a one or a zero. Here's the thing. Nobody aces the test. No one can. Everyone's a zero. The only source of security is trusting in Jesus, his atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, which instituted a new covenant and sealed his victory over sin and death. Those trusting in Christ are secure, but, and I think many of you know that here this morning. You know, yeah, I'm secure. I got it. Thanks for the review. But it may not always feel like you are secure. I'll just give you a thought on why that might be. Very number of reasons. Let me just give you one thought on what that might be. I'd say that that might mean that your desires, 
your affections, the things that you care about, are not in their proper place. When things get out of their proper place, we start to get tossed and turned by the waves of life, by the events of life, by the circumstances of life. Now listen, we're not like, we aren't like a, a massive you know, super tanker where nothing moves us. We're probably a little bit more like a buoy, riding up and down on the waves a little bit. But we should be unsinkable. But when your priorities are out of place, it can get a little weird. Imagine a family with a toddler, okay, where the whims and desires of the toddler decided what they would do that day. When they would eat, where they would go, and when bedtime was. Surely some comedy would ensue, but that would be an absolute terror for all involved. Not just mom and dad, but for the toddler as well. And why is that? Well, the toddler's not in his proper place. The same is true of the very good things in your life. Family, work, money, leisure, vacation, food, relationships. Oh, they're wonderful. Relationships with friends and family. Even our personal health. All good. And all of them can leave their proper place and become things in which we place our functional trust. Notice I use the word functional there. So we believe and profess that Christ is our security, but a lot of times we function a little differently than that. We live like those things, like, uh, like those are the things that will give us security, and that's when they've left their proper place. So here, here's what I would suggest. And, and, and listen, guys, this isn't prescriptive. This is just what I found helpful in my life. Maybe you will as well. When we're off kilter, feeling unanchored, I would just say, look at, take a minute, look inward, look at how you're functioning. Is everything in its proper place? Where is our chief source of identity and security? And then bring to mind scripture. For me, it's Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself up for me. That's like a key identity verse. Again, it's not a formula to instantly feel better, but I think anytime you bring Scripture to mind, you wield the sword, like we just heard six weeks ago in Ephesians, against your own flesh, sometimes against evil forces, but in both cases, what I know is that when you do that, the Lord multiplies your effort. So with our last few minutes here, I just want to ask a question. A brother, actually, before our, ser- before our time this morning, he's like, are you going to extol Jesus? He said, I think so. I hope so. But it's interesting. I haven't talked about Jesus very much, have I? So as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking to myself, where is Jesus? This is bleak, man. My outline is rough. So I t- got to thinking about it a little bit. I said, well... You know, there's this idea of typology, right? That as you look through scriptures, there's a, a David is a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ, and so on and so forth, right? I said, well, Amos is a lot like Jesus. Maybe Amos was a type of Christ. Amos was a prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Amos put the Israelites on blast for their injustice and lack of mercy. Jesus put the Pharisees on blast for their hypocrisy. 
Amos pleaded on behalf of Israel, and twice God relented. Jesus pleads on behalf of believers continually. He's always interceding for us before the Father. But I think that's where the similarities end. When God drops the plumb line of his perfect righteousness and holiness against the wall of Israel, he finds that it is crooked. And remember, Amos can neither say nor do anything for Israel. There's nothing to plead There's no defense that he can make before God's perfect standard. But when God comes to your life and he drops the plumb line, he sees every imperfection. He sees every sin. He sees every place that you've ever gone astray. Everything that is crooked. Nothing, nothing is hidden from his perfection. But that, praise God, that is where Amos and Jesus are different. Where Amos was silent, Jesus says, Father, this one is mine. Look not at his or her sins. Instead, look at me. And pour out your wrath on me instead of them. And it works because Jesus is perfect. This is the beauty of Jesus. If you know him and trust him as Lord and Savior, praise him and give him thanks this morning. But if you've not started on that journey of trusting him, I plead with you, run to him now. Confess your sin. You will be found wanting God's perfection is just that. It's perfect. And here's the thing about confessing your sin. He already knows all of your sin. There's nothing that you'll say that, oh, I didn't know about that. He knows it all. Just come clean. Cast yourself on him as your your perfect Savior and Lord. And here's the great thing. He always accepts all who come to him and repentance and faith. He never casts anyone out. He never says, oh, you got to clean that up a little bit. He doesn't say that. It's not what he does. And when the plumb line of God's perfection is dropped in the midst of your life, you'll be found in him, secure, on solid ground for today, tomorrow, and forever. Why don't you stand with me and pray? God, we are so thankful for the solid ground of the Lord Jesus. Oh, we are on shaky ground on our own, unstable ground, crooked and without hope. So God, we thank you once again this morning that you have given us solid ground. You have given us not just a hope that maybe things will work out, but a sure and fast anchor for the soul In your son, Jesus, we thank you again for his perfect righteousness applied to our lives. We thank you for the freedom, oh, the freedom to be obedient to you, to love you, to walk in your ways. Lord, be with us this week. Help us to do justice with your resources. 